The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back to this second part of our chat with Dr. Anita Banerjee, consultant in endocrinology and diabetes, general medicine, and most notably, a national leader in obstetric medicine. In our last episode, we looked at gestational diabetes and VTE in pregnancy. We've got even more to cover in this episode where we look at hypertension in pregnancy, we look at heart failure in pregnancy, epilepsy, asthma, and towards the end, we touch briefly on COVID-19 vaccination. And not only that, but at the end of the show, Anita tackles her quiz the consultant topic of Harry Potter. Now, there's some big news on paces coming out of the Royal College this week, which is that the COVID format of paces will stop from the second diet of 2022, which is this next diet starting applications in April. Seriously great news there. No more communications or history taking via video conference. But without further ado, let's get into this second part of our chat with Dr. Anita Banerjee. And welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast. And we have been joined by Dr. Anita Banerjee, a national leader in obstetric medicine. So far in the show, we've been tackling the difficult topic of a pregnant patient as they might be presented in paces. And we have spoken about gestational diabetes and we've spoken about VTE in pregnancy. And in this part of the show, we're going to be tackling a few more issues which might come up in a pregnant patient in paces. So moving on to hypertension in a pregnant patient. Now, this is something which could come up in the medical take as well as in a pregnant patient in paces. So, Anita, what sort of hypertensive problems can occur in pregnancy? Yeah, thanks, Sam. So there are a number of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. The first one is pre-existing hypertension and walking into a pregnancy with known hypertension or as is common, particularly, I think, with the pandemic, um, non-diagnosed hypertension. So this would normally happen in the first trimester and definitely before 20 weeks. After 20 weeks, we we are either have pregnancy-induced hypertension, which really means that you have hypertension in pregnancy, but that only happens in the the second half of pregnancy, or you have preeclampsia, which is hypertension in pregnancy associated with 
both factors that affect the mother and the baby, which is associated with the raised blood pressure, proteinurias, and also the effect on the mother or the baby, which could be growth or it could be problems you can see in the mom. Brilliant. And so with something like preeclampsia, where you've got the addition of proteinuria, as well as the presence of hypertension, what are the sort of different ways which we can um, quantify or measure protein in the urine in these patients? Yeah, really, really good question. So proteinuria in pregnancy is abnormal. Unless you have a pre-existing renal disease or another reason, you should not have any protein. And when you do find it, you do want to quantify it. So in the old days, we used to do 24-hour urine collections. But you're pleased to know now that we do a protein-creatine ratio, which is a spot urine that you can measure any time in pregnancy. It doesn't have to be first thing in the morning or anything. And we send that to the laboratory. So anybody who has trace protein, one plus protein or above, we would always send a baseline protein creatinine ratio. Brilliant. And one thing that I think might be sort of misjudged in these patients from a medical perspective, because these hypertensive patients are often more seen by the obstetricians rather than by the physicians, is we sort of lose uh, perspective as to how common these types of conditions are. And also, Um, whether or not there's any sort of link between these conditions you know if you have hypertension or um, hypertension induced by pregnancy are you then more likely to have preeclampsia or uh, you know more severe forms of hypertension in in further pregnancies yeah really really good question so hypertensive disorders in pregnancy is a problem it's a good red flag of problems to come And we can divide them into exactly what you said. So if you've got hypertension in pregnancy, whether it's pre-existing pregnancy-induced hypertension, you can go on to get preeclampsia later in the pregnancy. So if we think about it, hypertensive disorders as a a whole, about 8 to 10% of pregnancies, and preeclampsia can occur in anything between 3 and 7% of your population. It really depends on where you live and your demographics or the population that you serve where your risk of um, preeclampsia in your population, you'll see more or less of. And this is important to note, you know, you should always be looking for it. And as a physician, walking onto labour ward, if this lady presents either at your acute medicine unit or your A&E, if she's got hypertension, you know, was it there at the beginning of pregnancy or at the end? Is it associated with proteinuria or, or any other end organ problems? And you really want to know this because, you can make a difference there with the baby and making sure that mum and baby are okay because having hypertension pregnancy increases your risk of either having a small baby, an abruption where the placenta comes off and the baby's in trouble or problems with the mum, such as eclampsia. More importantly, there's also a risk factor of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy and long-term health and your increased risk of cardiovascular problems and stroke later in life. So this is really, really necessary, important to, to measure. And I think as a physician, we should, we should be there understanding this. Of these patients who develop hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, I think a couple of things which would be helpful for the listeners to know is that what are the sort of risk factors for these types of uh, hypertension in pregnancy? You've already mentioned, you know, the risk of having hypertensive disorders will, will you know, be increased if you've had previous episodes but what are the other sorts of factors which listeners should be asking these patients about if they're seeing these patients with newly diagnosed hypertension in pregnancy 
So I think the first thing is to understand that the risk factors for something called gestational hypertension, i.e. after 20 weeks, is if it's your first pregnancy, if you've had multiple pregnancies, i.e. you've got a twin or triplets, IVF, and um, if you're of a the BAME ethnicity, so if you've got any other ethnic um, factors, this will increase your risk, as will obesity. And then if we put preeclampsia into this and ha- increase your risk, if you've got gestational hypertension, you've got a risk, but also if you've got a pre-existing medical condition such as hypertension, type 1 or type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, many of the autoimmune diseases, because these women do go on to have pregnancies either with lupus or with antiphospholipid syndrome and all of these increase your risk of preeclampsia so you're taking that full history as a physician you will really add value to the woman that you see in front of you yeah brilliant and as well as knowing the risk factors we should be looking for the next thing i guess would be know if we know that a patient has a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy we need to know the possible complications if this goes untreated and so not only can this help the patient by emphasizing the importance of compliance with you know medical teams and medical therapy but also it helps us risk stratify these patients in terms of or determine the risk of these patients having um further multi-systemic um problems further down the line and i thought it'd be sensible to sort of divide these complications into those specific two um specific to pregnancy and those specific or those specific to pregnancy and then those um, which have a more sort of multi-systemic effect. So I wonder if you can just run us through the the complications both in the pregnant patient and then um, in further down the line eventually when the patient is no longer pregnant. Really when you look at a woman with hypertension during pregnancy you've got to think what how does it affect the baby how does it affect the mom? So with the mom you've got to think about the risk of preterm delivery for the baby, you've got an increased risk of stillbirth or neonatal death. You've got an increased risk of miscarriage if the, if the blood pressure is really high, particularly in the first or second trimester. And then serial growth scans, which is what the obstetricians are really good at, looking for intrauterine growth restriction, i.e. the baby's um, smaller than it should be, you know, in the um, less than the third centile, or for dropping in its serial growth scans. So the beauty is, that obstetricians um, are far more knowledgeable and have really good surveillances looking for women with pre-existing hypertension and pre-eclampsia. And scanning is really, really important. So it may be a 36-week scan, but many of the women, particularly with hypertension, type 1, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, are having serial growth scans. And it's that fall in the growth that you can see when you measure it serially between 28, 32 and 36 weeks that may indicate to you that this baby's not doing good. The problem with a baby not growing so well in utero it has an increased risk of stillbirth because this is what you're trying to avoid. The very, very raised high blood pressures may in- in- increase the risk of something called placental abruption, which is a medical emergency in the obstetric world and something that's really horrendous because it increases again the risk of stillbirth and it can be detrimental to the mum as well. The other question that you asked about the kind of the long-term consequences of having hypertension in pregnancy and what it means to the mother is that it does actually increase their risk of having chronic kidney disease and renal impairment. It may increase their risk of, of actually having a stroke and cardiovascular risk factors, and that includes 
things such as ischemic heart disease, heart failure, and also aortic stenosis. Um, at the time of having preeclampsia, it also causes problems. And this can also be life-threatening and cause morbidity, which includes things like liver dysfunction, includes things like hematological consequences, such as low platelets, BIC and hemolysis. And all of these factors increase the risk at the, for the mum intrapartum and during labour to have um, horrible morbidity, which increases their risk of ending up in hospital longer, needing blood products, increase their risk of complications like sepsis and bleeding. You know, and, and this really is something that we want to avoid. This is not something that women want to remember. I've just done a clinic just now and I've seen a lady who does remember having problems in her last pregnancy with hypertension. And it's really affected her. Women are left with post-traumatic stress disorder because suddenly during a normal pregnancy, these horrendous things can happen and they lose control. And this is something that you don't want to do. And so as a physician, it's really, really important that we support our obstetric colleagues. When you come up to labor ward, don't be afraid. You're there to give your expertise to know when this morbidity occurs in preeclampsia and how you can help with improving the numbers and sorting things out. I must remind you that for preeclampsia, the cure is actually removing the placenta, i.e. delivering to the baby. But you should never do this without actually supporting blood pressure and ensuring that you've got the blood pressure control really, really optimal before you deliver. Yeah, brilliant. All important when we're thinking about these hypertensive patients. And we're going to move on next to um, the investigations and management of these patients who are presenting with um, hypertension. And if the listeners haven't already looked at our um, episode on hypertension in the non-pregnant patient, do look back through our catalogue to find our conversation with Dr. Angus Nightingale, a consultant cardiologist, where we did a comprehensive run through of all types of hypertension. But I guess one common factor in this situation, which is the same for a pregnant patient or a non-pregnant patient, is to ensure you have a correct diagnosis. So ensure the blood pressure is taken in a calm environment with the right sized cuff after the patient has been resting for five minutes, just ensuring that you're you know, doing the basics well, ensuring you're confirming that diagnosis with the patient. But Anita, are there any other investigations which are more specific to a patient with um, or a patient who has hypertension in pregnancy that maybe is slightly different from a patient who has hypertension who isn't pregnant? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I, I think I need to go back and listen to that podcast with the hypertension outside of pregnancy, because all of these factors are important. You know, your salt consumption, and your lifestyle changes that you can do, even in those 40 weeks of gestation, you know, make sure you don't gain too much weight, regular exercise. So the RCOG recommends 30 minutes of exercise every day, increasing your heart rate. And we should be encouraging this and making sure our women stay mobile oxygen um, and smoking. Smoking is a problem and causes hypertension. We don't want that. So really smoking cessation is a top priority for us in maternity. And also alcohol consumption, you know, reducing that as much as you possibly can. So all of those specific lifestyle changes that we talk about outside pregnancy are important during pregnancy. In pregnancy, I think it's really about engaging with them measuring it and ensuring that you understand what this means to the mom and to the baby. The problem with hypertension, as we all know, is, it, is it's not symptomatic. And it's not symptomatic. No one seems to worry about it. But with preeclampsia, 
it has very, very classical symptoms and signs which are necessary. And you need to be actually ask those questions every single time you see a pregnant woman in the second half of pregnancy to ensure they haven't got preeclampsia. So, Sam, if I take you back to the first, second and third trimester, lifestyle advice and talking to a woman with hypertension is, you know, are you taking your medication regularly? It's really important we get that right. Second is making sure we've got them on the right medication and thinking about this. And I think this is a very general basis question that we should all know what drugs are safe during pregnancy and what's safe outside of pregnancy. So we all know that ACE inhibitors and ARBs are not used in the second and third trimester of pregnancy. But if a woman conceives on an ACE inhibitor, you've got to reassure her that the phytopathy you're not going to see in the first trimester you de definitely do not want her to have it in her second and third trimester. The common drugs that we use during pregnancy do actually include drugs like methyldopa, which we don't use that often now, nifedipine, amlodipine. If you've been on it before pregnancy, it's safe to remain on it and it's entirely safe. Labetalol we use quite a bit in pregnancy. And then other drugs such as hydralazine and doxazacin are entirely safe. I'd all recommend all of you to go and look at the NICE Hypertension and Pregnancy Guidelines. They have a superb table that will remind you what's safe during pregnancy. The target for blood pressure control, um, anything over 140-90 should be treated in pregnancy. And outside of pregnancy, um, it's, a, it's relatively the same. But when you've got pre-existing hypertension, and you're treating somebody with that, your target is a little bit lower. So your diastolic should be between 80 and 85, and your systolic should be between 130 and 135. Now, the question that we all need to ask ourselves is, if you know that all of these conditions, these hypertensive disorders in pregnancy can cause problems, i.e. preeclampsia later on, what can the women do? What can we do as health professionals? And the guidance at the moment, and there's very good data, data on this, the aspirin taken once a day at night from approximately 12 weeks until 36 weeks gestation reduces your risk of preeclampsia and reduces your risk of those complications. So one of the important things is there are risk factors for preeclampsia that you need to be aware of. Secondly, we should be engaging with our women and ensuring they, they start taking the aspirin at, at around mm -hmm. this gestation. And then more importantly, discussing the compliance, because it's the compliance of taking that medication that will make a difference. Yeah, fantastic. And one thing that I really think would be really helpful to pin down is, is when exactly we as physicians should be concerned about a patient who is pregnant and hypertensive. What sort of symptoms should we be um, specifically asking about, which would you know be marked as you know red flags in our history taking for, for a pregnant patient who's hypertensive? Yeah, really, really good question. So if you see a pregnant woman in the first half of pregnancy, who's got a blood pressure of over 140-90, you've got to think, have you diagnosed somebody with pre-existing hypertension? Are there any secondary causes of hypertension that you're seeing here? Pheochromocytoma may present. So you've got to think about these things. You know, if a woman suddenly has these really high blood pressures and you haven't got a reason that before 20 weeks, are you missing your secondary causes? As you go to the second half of, of pregnancy, the raised blood pressures will actually cause problems with the mother and the baby, and you don't want them to have your stroke or you don't want them to have a placental abruption. So the red flag numbers that you need to know is have maintain a blood pressure less than 140-90. And then in the world of obstetrics, 
in obstetric emergencies, anything above 160 over 110. If you see those values, particularly in the second half of pregnancy, these women can have an increased risk of, of, of a stroke or placental abruption. You know, preeclampsia still remains one of the number one reasons for maternal deaths globally, though the numbers of women who die of preeclampsia in this country has re reduced dramatically in the past 20 years, mainly because of the hard work of the surveillance that maternity does on recognising it. And I think you're absolutely right, Sam, that we as health professionals should be working with them. So you talked to me about red flags. And I think when you take a history of a woman who's in the second half of her pregnancy, you've got to ask them about, you know, what is your blood pressure? If it is over 160, over 110, you've got to ask about, have they got any symptoms? And the symptoms we ask are, have they got a headache? Have they got any flashing lights or double vision, visual disturbances? And the visual disturbances of a preeclampsia headache are very unique to women. They are not like auras of migraine or anything like this. And we've got to ask them specifically, are you seeing any flashing lights? And also a question that we wouldn't normally ask outside of pregnancy. Have they got any right upper quadrant pain? Epigastric pain is a marker of preeclampsia, and particularly something called HELP and the risk of a, um, of a hematoma, okay, and a subcapsular hematoma in the right upper quadrant. So we really want to avoid these things because these are um, really causes a lot of morbidity and you don't want to miss this. The second thing is that sudden onset of swelling and that swelling of your arms and your face and snoring, actually, is another marker. You know, someone who doesn't snore, who starts snoring, particularly in the um, at that time when the blood pressures are high and their face is swollen is a marker of, of preeclampsia. And these are the women that you should be bringing in to your maternity assessment unit, to your obstetric colleagues to assess their well-being. In this country, anybody who we diagnose with preeclampsia, we actually admit them. This doesn't happen globally, but in this UK, we still admit anybody who's got preeclampsia. They've become smarter it's not only the history, the examination, we've also got blood tests and special tests we can do, which are biomarkers of the placenta called PLGF. And you can measure these. And I would go back to all of your maternity units in the hospital you work. Do they have these markers? Because PLGF is a very good marker, particularly if it falls during pregnancy in the second half of health preeclampsia. So once again, it's a multidisciplinary approach. For us, it's about asking the question and, and identifying it, working with the obstetricians and then understanding how to manage this. Because as I said to you before, if you have preeclampsia, there is a finite time when you need to actually think about delivery because delivery is the only thing that's going to actually reverse and make this better. Yeah, brilliant. And if, say, for example, we are going to admit this patient let's say they've got blood pressures well over the 160 over 110. What are the usual therapies, which maybe we would use as sort of temporizing measures before we're able to get these pregnant patients um, to, to theater to uh, deliver, deliver the baby? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, so obstetricians are really good at this. Midwives are really good at this. Okay. So they use intravenous labetalol and intravenous hydralazine. They give bolus doses and then an infusion and they start it very quickly. They don't normally use sodium, um, sodium nitroposide or isosorbide mononitrate. It's really hydralazine and IV labetalol. And let the midwives and the obstetricians 
actually prescribe it and give it because they're really good at it. The other smart thing is something called magnesium sulfate. You know, we love magnesium sulfate as physicians. It's great for asthma and great for many things. But actually, it's, it's really good to reduce your risk of eclampsia. And also, it, it really does work. And it also is used for neuroprotection for the baby. So don't be afraid of these drugs. And make sure you get the obstetricians involved because they're much quicker at using it. They use much bigger doses than we do for asthma. And um, Sam, as you said, you don't just go in and start delivering the baby. You optimize everything. You optimize the blood pressure. You start the magnesium sulfate and you wait to get this right before you deliver the baby. Brilliant. So there we have a comprehensive run through of the assessment and management of a hypertensive patient in pregnancy. And just to finish off before we get to quiz the consultant, we're just going to be running through a bit of a mishmash of a variety of other medical issues for the pregnant patient. So just starting off, Anita, we're just going to have a brief chat about a few different things. And we're going to start off with, well, we finished talking about magnesium and asthma. And now we're just going to move on to asthma in the pregnant patient. So what are the sort of pertinent points just to mention about um, management of asthma in a pregnant patient? Yeah, so the first thing is, whatever you do outside of pregnancy, you can do in pregnancy. So all the drugs are safe. Chest x-ray, peak flow. Chest x-ray is really useful. Peak flows are normal in pregnancy, so there's no drop. So whatever value you get is the value you have. And the most important thing is you can use all the medication. There is nothing that is contraindicated. If you wanted to use magnesium sulfate because you're worried about somebody with asthma, I would say use it more during pregnancy. Second tip I would say to you is that it's one of those common things that I see in my obstetric medicine clinics and acutely and you know, treating it, getting the right dose, but more importantly, adding tips like because of the bump, um, you've got an increased risk of gastroesophageal reflux disease. So adding in a meprazole at the same time is actually quite handy. So those are my big top tips for asthma and pregnancy. Fantastic. Short and sweet, but of critical importance when we're seeing um, seeing these patients with asthma in pregnancy. And so the next thing we were going to touch on is anti-epileptics in pregnancy. So Anita, what, what are the considerations? I've got two separate scenarios for you. What are the considerations for a pregnant patient who presents with seizures and then a known lady with epilepsy um, who is pregnant, who is already taking anti-epileptic medication? Yeah, they're really good questions and they're really pertinent because I think seizures, we're all frightened of them. And when they're pregnant, it's even more scarier. So if you've got new seizures, you've got to think about a cause. Is it epilepsy? Is it a space-occupying lesion? Is it metabolic? So you've got to find the cause and you've got to treat appropriately. So when you consider a pregnant woman with new seizures, you've got to think about what drug do you want to give? And the one that you don't want to give is sodium valparate. Okay, so IV, so you just don't use sodium valparate during pregnancy. There's an increased risk of neurodevelopmental delay. But IV levetiricetam, IV phenytoin, if you need to use these, IV carbamazepine, they're all safe. The most important question to ask a woman with new seizures is, why has she got them? If it's epilepsy and you're getting more and more seizures, it's really important that we manage women with known epilepsy in pregnancy well. 
women still die of epilepsy in pregnancy, something called SUDEP. You know about SUDEP outside of pregnancy? There's an increased risk in pregnancy, particularly those women who have multiple seizures, non-compliant, nocturnal seizures. They should really have been counseled pre-pregnancy of the risk of seizures. And the most important thing is the medication is safe, apart from sodium valproate. So getting the diagnosis of the disease is correct, making sure they're on the appropriate anti-epileptic drug, giving every woman that has epilepsy and who's planning to be pregnant five milligrams of folic acid three months before pregnancy and throughout pregnancy. And also having those honest counselling discussions about the safety of them. And I'm pleased to tell you that, you know, as I said, you know, levetiracetam is safe. We use lamotrigine. These are safe. The problem is because of the pharmacokinetics of pregnancy, the doses of them may be changed. And what we do know is it's not just the drug value. It's actually taking that history. Are they getting auras? You know, really take that finite story about their seizures and get the dose right. And it's not a today or tomorrow discussion. If a woman's having a seizure, treat it. If you need to increase the dose, increase it today. Don't wait until after the weekend because their increased risk of the seizures is what's going to increase their risk of actually something terrible happening, such as SUDEP. I think those are my top tips. And never stop a medication, even if it is sodium valproate, and they, they turn up to you in your acute medicine unit or wherever you are. I would say don't just come off something suddenly. Really, really have those proper conversations, particularly women with tonic-clonic seizures, and get your epilepsy specialist involved, get your maternal medicine and obstetric physician team involved. And again, it's pick up the phone now and speak today. It's not a referral for six weeks' time. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other thing just to say as well would be, you're not going to be alone in making this decision. You're going to be talking to uh, the patient's usual neurologist, if they have a usual neurologist, and you're going to be involving the obstetric medicine team or the obstetricians themselves. So yeah, we're not thinking this is a decision you're going to be making by yourself. You're going to have lots of help and support uh, from uh, more experienced senior doctors as well. Absolutely. So then moving on to something uh, closer to my heart, Anita, which is heart failure in pregnancy. And when I first mentioned uh, this this topic, you you mentioned that we should change the the heading which I'd used from peripartum cardiomyopathy to heart failure in pregnancy. And I was just wondering why why that was that you felt you know we should maybe move away from using peripartum cardiomyopathy and and just talk about heart failure in pregnancy. We we the obstetric landscape has really changed in the UK, and you know women are older, women have more pre um, pre existing medical conditions. And actually, we see more heart failures secondary to pre-existing cardiac disease, such as dilated cardiomyopathy, et cetera, than we do women with peripartum cardiomyopathy. So I think if we, today, if we all talk about heart failure and you see a woman with heart failure, don't just think it has to be peripartum cardiomyopathy. They may have a pre-existing cardiac condition. So it's just to get that finite aspect right, because then you're managing everybody and you're not just labeling them with a, with a condition because peripartum cardiomyopathy still remains a diagnosis of exclusion rather than a diagnosis of, exclu- of inclusion. And so heart failure in pregnancy, we all need to know about it, okay? Because as you know, as a cardiologist, shortness of breath is, is tricky. And if you think about when it occurs, are you thinking about somebody with a known mitral stenosis 
who's actually decompensated in the first half of pregnancy? Are you talking about somebody with a dilated cardiomyopathy who decompensates in the second half of pregnancy? So just taking that history of shortness of breath, sudden onset, orthopnea, and you know, measuring the BMP, examining, looking for crackles would actually give you that diagnosis. So I really, really want to make sure that all of us treat pregnant women the same and look for those typical symptoms of heart failure in everybody. And don't just think that it's because she's, you know, overweight or that she's um, pregnant, that she's short of breath. Yeah. And one thing I just wanted to touch on as well was the the treatment, more or less, I believe it is pretty much the same. So you're using your loop diuretics such as Bruzmai to reduce the pulmonary congestion beta blockers can be used in in the chronic phase but not often in the acute phase if someone's acutely in pulmonary edema you're not going to be um, using that and then i guess the only other thing to note is that as you've said before using ace inhibitors isn't recommended in the second or third trimesters but it's something that you might consider following the delivery and you know to to help with your diagnosis you know in terms of investigations and echocardiograms probably going to be the seminal investigation um you mentioned a bnp and anything else you think might be helpful in this sort of situation i think an ecg is important i think reminding all of our um, listeners that the doses of fruzamide you know don't you start with 20 always start with 40 you know be aggressive and and get rid of this fluid as that's what we need to do and beta blockers are safe. I know that there's been these discussions and papers in the past telling us that beta blockers increases the risk of in, um, small babies. But we've got to actually know that beta blockers are really good. If you've, if you've got somebody with a pre-existing cardiac condition, slowing that heart rate, rate down is really, really necessary. So we do see women you know, use, um, with beta blockers from a range of 2.25 to 10 milligrams of bisoprolol and feel very comfortable with this. And I think it's giving us and empowering us to use those medicines. And I think getting the doses right. And again, exactly what you said, Sam, you know, you're not doing this alone. We work as a team. But as the IMT doctor, seeing a patient in the acute setting, you've got to get these doses and drugs right to make an effect. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I just wanted to ask is, is for these ladies who develop heart failure in pregnancy do these women generally manage to deliver vaginally or do they require um cesarean section yeah it's a really really good question because um intrapartum is when the cardiac output increases the most so you've got to really think about you know why is the woman in heart failure what is the pre-existing condition is there a fixed preload or afterload and what are you trying to prevent so I, do, I would strongly advise that we we as physicians should not be saying that every single woman with heart disease needs to be delivered by cesarean section. There is many women that can be delivered vaginally, but it's got to be in the right place. And with the development of the maternal medicine networks, thinking about the risk stratification of the modified WHO guidelines for the different forms of cardiac diseases in pregnancy and the risks of morbidity and mortality, that it can be joined. So I think the most important message for us all is that not everybody needs a cesarean section, but when we make a decision, it needs to be multidisciplinary. Brilliant. And then moving on to something which is slightly more topical in the current climate, which I think is really important just to add into the end of this episode is COVID-19 vaccination in pregnancy. 
there's a whole lot of information and you can really go down a rabbit hole um, if you wanted to look into this um, with a great deal of depth. But, you know, we've got one of the national leaders um, with us on obstetric medicine. So, Anita, what what is the current guidance um, on the COVID-19 vaccine in pregnancy? The most important thing is it's completely safe. We should be encouraging every pregnant woman to have their COVID vaccination. And you'll be pleased to know, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, pregnancy is now one of the vulnerable groups. that We actually have placed them as one of the top group of women that need the vaccination. What I want to tell you today is that actually it's completely safe, whether it's in the first, second or third trimester. There's more than 300,000 women as, as of today who have had the COVID vaccination. We've got data from the UK of more than 55,000 women who've had the COVID vaccination and had excellent outcomes. The disadvantage of having COVID in pregnancy is that particularly we've seen with the different types, whether it's a wild type and then the Delta, the variant, and now the Omicron, is that women are more susceptible. If you're not vaccinated, you have a higher risk of ending up in intensive care. If you're not vaccinated, you have a higher risk of having pre, um, the COVID disease, having preeclampsia, and increasing your risk of having a stillbirth or a miscarriage. Okay. So these are the reasons why we as health professionals should feel very confident of providing the COVID vaccination to every woman at any gestation. Fantastic. And I don't think the message could, could have been any clearer on that. So I think that pretty much wraps up our episode on assessing the pregnant patient in a PACES station, but also full of nuggets of knowledge to help us in our um, clinical practice. And one of the things I think you might have mentioned earlier, um, Anita, was a lot of the things we've discussed today are summed up in a really great little document which can be found publicly. I'm sure you can just Google it, but it's, it's the Acute Care Toolkit 15 which you can find publicly online. Um, and I used it a lot in researching for the for this episode. Really excellent in terms of all the considerations you need to have with um, a, a pregnant patient on the medical take. So, so yeah, I just say, and I think you were involved in the production of, of the document, Anita, weren't you? Yeah, we were actually. I feel very passionate about it and I hope it's useful. It's found on the RCP website and as you said Sam it, it just enables you to remind yourself of the red flag stop the clinical inertia and gives you reminds you really of the differentials both obstetric and non-obstetric of why women present with the common symptoms during pregnancy. Fantastic well we've wrapped up the clinical content for this episode so let's move on to the next feature our regular feature which is quiz the consultant. So we all know that consultants are experts in their field, but what else occupies the brilliant minds of our consultants, which isn't medicine? Each episode, I lay down the gauntlet to each consultant who comes on the show to give me a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat being that it can't be related to medicine. So, Anita, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? So obviously, knowing me, it had to be Harry Potter. I've been a Harry Potter fan forever, read every single book, but that was all a long time ago. Sam, I have to remember. But um, yeah, I'm going to call myself an expert today, not. <laughs> well, I have no doubt that you are just playing it down and, you know, 
all I'll say is that it was a it was a real joy to to write this quiz. Very very happy to uh, to finally get um, a topic like this on the podcast. So thank you so much for picking this uh, picking this as as your subject on um, quiz the consultant. I'm sure this is a quiz topic which so many people um, will feel they are experts on themselves. So it'll be interesting to see how the listeners um, do at home as well. And the questions are maybe not as basic as they might be for your average Potterhead on the basis that I'm a huge fan. Obviously, you're a huge fan and there'll be plenty of fans at home as well. So I just thought I'd, I'd just run a couple of questions past you. What's your standout moment from the Harry Potter saga? A moment that, you know, resonates with you or, or um, from a book or, or even one of the films, just something that you absolutely love about the series? So actually, it's it's one of the very first ones. And I think this is what attracted me when I read the first book was, was that idea of the Harry Potter, the orphan, the unloved boy and him living under the staircase. And I think... Um, uh, I've I've just renovated my house and I've got, I've made one of those little rooms actually. We all looked at that uh, and and I think it's just the idea of where he began, where he was placed. But, so that stands out the most for me. Um, if you ask me right now. So getting into the quiz, this is how we play. There are ten questions in total. For each question, you can get two points per question. If you can answer the question. Without the multiple choice options, you can get two points. But if you're struggling, you can take the multiple choice options. There are four options. And if you get it right, you can take one point. So a maximum of 20 points. If you're struggling to get it without the multiple choice, you can get one point for using the multiple choice options. Okay. And as a bit of a a structural thing for you to do with this quiz, I've taken um, for the first seven questions, it's one question from each book. And then for the last three questions, I've used um, things to do with medicine within Harry Potter or medical issues within Harry Potter. So let's see how you do. Ten questions on Harry Potter. Question number one. So this is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. What does the mirror of Erised show anyone who looks into it? The past. Is that your final answer? That is my final answer. Okay, let's give you the multiple choice options. I'll give you the multiple choice options. That's your one mulligan for the rest of the quiz. Okay. Okay. So the options are their deepest fears, their deepest regrets, their deepest desires, or their deepest paddling pool. The deepest desires. Correct. For one point, you're on the board. Yep, I remember it well. Yeah. Question number two, Chamber of Secrets. Harry and Ron crash a flying car into which Hogwarts landmark? It's the tree. Do you want the name of the tree? I can would, I get I, a clue? If you can, you can, do you want the multiple choice options? Yes, please. Okay, so it, is it the Forbidden Forest? Is it the Whomping Willow? Is it the Astronomy Tower? Or is it Dumbledore's office? It's Whomping Willow. Correct. For one point. Question number three, and it's the prisoner of Azkaban. What was the cause of the shrieking that came from the shrieking shack? Oh, you've got me thinking. If you give me, can I have the four options, please? You certainly can. Was the shrieking in the shrieking shack caused by a banshee? Was it a werewolf? Was it a ghost? Or was it a madman? 
with a banshee? It was a werewolf because oh. Remus Lupin was it was his hideout when he was when he was a werewolf. He used to hang out in the Shrieking Shack. Um, but never mind. On to question number four from the Goblet of Fire. For the second task of the Triwizard Tournament, who gives Harry the clue to listen to the golden egg under the water? I'm thinking. Can I have the four options, please? You can. Was it Cedric Diggory? Was it Ron? Was it Moaning Myrtle? Or was it Hagrid? It was Moaning Myrtle. It was Moaning Myrtle. But one more point on the board. Question number five. Order of the Phoenix. Whose life is Harry able to save around Christmas time due to his mind connection with Voldemort? So you it was Ron's know. dad. It was Mr. Weasley. Correct. For two points, it was Arthur Weasley. Moving on to question number six from the Half-Blood Prince. Horace Slughorn is welcomed as the new potions master in this book where a rare potion features called Felix Felicis. What does this potion do? Oh, can I have the four options, please? Certainly can. Does it give the drinker good luck for 12 hours? Does it give the drinker superior intellect for 12 hours? Does it give the drinker the gift of the gab for 12 hours? Or does it give the drinker a raging libido for 12 hours? <laughs> well, it's definitely not the last one. <laughs> Can you repeat the first three, please? Yeah, so is it is it good luck for 12 hours, superior intellect for 12 hours, or gift of the gab for 12 hours? Gift of the gab for 12 hours. It, it was good luck. I'm afraid. Felix Felicis, yeah, it gives the oh. gives the drinker good luck for twelve hours. Totally, totally forgot. No matter. On to question number seven, the last book, The Deathly Hallows. Harry is attempted to be smuggled from Privet Drive to the Burrow by members of the Order of the Phoenix disguising themselves as Harry using polyjuice potion and flying through various means. However, en route they are all ambushed by Death Eaters. How do the Death Eaters figure out which Harry is the real one? They don't, from memory. Would you like the four options? Yes, please. <laughs> so, the options are the disguised Harrys do not have the lightning scar on their foreheads. Okay. Is it Harry is flying his own broomstick? Is it that Hedwig defends Harry during the flight? Or is it that Harry uses his favourite spell, Expelliarmus? It must be Hedwig. Hedwig. Hedwig must have given Harry away. That's all. Yeah, absolutely see. correct. For the point. So we're on to the last three questions. So these are all things within um, the within the field of medicine in the Harry Potter books. So question number eight. In Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, some of the students are afflicted by a state where they become paralyzed unconscious and unresponsive due to attacks from the creature that lives in the chamber what is the name of this state i have the four options please the options are being terrified are the students being petrified stupefied or 
mummified. They're being stupefied. They are being petrified, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I've lost it. I've lost it myself. It's been a long week on call, Anita. We've all been there. We've all been there. All right. Question number nine. What is the name of the matron of the hospital wing at Hogwarts? Right, you're going to have to give me some clues, I'm afraid. Sure. The options are Madam Appleware, Madam Pomfrey, Madam Pardew, or Madam Hoover. Madam Pomfrey. That's correct. (laughs) It all comes back after a while. Yeah. I mean, that's what the options are for. And lastly, question number 10. What is the full name of the Wizarding Hospital in the Harry Potter world? Right, Sam, I need you. I need your clues, please. Absolutely. So, the options are: Is it St. Swithin's Surgery for Sorcerian Sickness? Is it St. Coulomb's Clinic for Enchanted Afflictions? Is it St. Helen's Health Centre for Clinically Curable Ailments? Or is it St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries? Do you know, Sam, I love your questions and I, and I love your <laughs> options. And I haven't got a clue, so I'm going to go for the last one. And it was the last one. You've got there. <laughs> That's great. And that gives you a final score of 8 out of 20. But, hey, it's not all about <laughs> the winning. It's all about the enjoyment. And I think you've got full marks for, uh, for enjoyment factors. So, uh, Anita, thank you so much for playing Quiz the Consultant on the specialist topic of Harry Potter. Loved it, Sam. Loved it. Thank you. <laughs> So listeners, throughout the whole episode, we've talked about how you should approach a patient presenting with issues relating to pregnancy in PACES. Um, We have been delighted to be joined by Dr. Anita Banerjee, consultant in uh, endocrinology, diabetes and obstetric medicine. Anita, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real delight. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sam, for having me. Have a great day. And pace sitters, we are just about out of time for this episode of the Pre Paces podcast. So, if you like the podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can get in touch via the usual social media channels on Twitter, it's at Pre Paces Podcast, or on email, it's Pre Paces Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcasts.